Hello, I'm Kate Fisher. Welcome to Milkshakes for Mali, the podcast that tells the survival stories of blood product recipients to thank donors and to encourage people to donate blood, plasma, platelets or breast milk. Today we also talk to you a little bit about bone marrow. If you've ever been a donor, you could have been the one to save the life of the guests that we profile here each week on the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. And becoming a donor in the future means that you too could become a part of this story. Here at the Milkshakes for Mali podcast, we aim to bridge the gap of anonymity between donors and their recipients. On a personal note, we are having a week of very big feelings with all of our kids going back to school this week and particularly as after delaying for a few years due to the instability of her health, our daughter Marley started primary school this week. There has been so much build up with ensuring that the staff were trained to manage seizures and to administer the seizure rescue medication midazolam and all the accommodations that were made in her classroom to manage her global developmental delay. She's starting at two hours a day, four days a week, and we will continue her rehabilitation program with her speechy OT and psychologist. But she is among her peers and she has worked so hard to get here. And I'm so proud of her and the rest of our family. Um, So to all the families with additional needs who have just started another school year, I see you. I feel the anxiety that you experience in allowing someone else to manage your children's needs. And I'm sending you all my love and hoping that your children all have the year that they need. And on that note, I welcome Grace, mama at the helm of a family with additional needs. Grace is a yoga teacher, a school teacher, and describes herself as a spiritual activist. She is mother to Raya, who has blood products and in February last year was diagnosed with leukemia. Okay, Grace, welcome to the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. Um, you were nominated by one of our listeners who saw you do a call out for blood products for your daughter, Raya, who needs blood products. Um, can you just tell me to start with a little bit about yourself and your family? Well, my name's Grace. I have uh, my husband, Ben, and my three children, Marcus, Aaliyah, and Raya. So they're eight, six, and Raya's recently turned five. Yeah. Um, we have moved states a few times we we got married and moved straight to western australia we lived there for a few years then moved to melbourne and for a few years and then we've hit sydney which is home for me um and uh shortly after my daughter was diagnosed with leukemia within a month of being here wow. so that was a year ago almost. um so if you if you're moving home to sydney i guess at least you moved back to a support network that was one of the things that i was going to ask you about about how hard it was having her diagnosed at the same time as moving um yeah it was a bit crazy really because the the plan was that i would come with the kids and settle them into school and um just sort of get some routine happening and my husband was still in melbourne trying to sort out the you know house and pack and finish his job um so he had he was ready to come but he just needed you know a few more weeks to sort things out but I didn't want to miss the beginning of the school year for them at the new school so I came ahead of him so I came in like January settling in and when she was diagnosed my husband wasn't here so it was um yeah it was really hard I was you know completely alone being told this information and then I had to call him up and inform him and he was in Melbourne and it was exactly when we had restrictions between New South Wales and um, Victoria. And I didn't even know if he could come in. I had no idea if he could come in and because they were blocked at that point. But the night of diagnosis, 
um, whatever you want to call this, like empirical of some kind, that mm. night at midnight, they lifted the restrictions. Ah. So he was able to fly the very next morning at 6am um, to see her. But if we didn't have that, it would have been really hard um, to try yeah. and work out how he was going to get here and get back. And yeah, so coming to Sydney was great, having the family, but we didn't know this was going to happen. It was just like, yeah, it was time to spend some time with family. We'd been away for so long mm. and um, it just happened all in one hit yeah. yeah so can you tell me a little bit about Raya pre-diagnosis so what were the things she liked to do favorite colors activities you know what kind of yeah. things was she doing before she became unwell so um Raya you know was four when she was diagnosed just turned four so she's doing whatever any other four-year-old's doing, really. She's living a really happy life with her two old, you know, two older siblings. She just started preschool. We literally got her uniform. Um, she had the orientation. She did two weeks of preschool, which she was so excited about. She absolutely loved it. Um, she was dancing. Um, she started her dance classes for the year. She was even enrolled in swimming lessons, which we did, I think, two weeks of as well. Um, she was living, you know, a perfectly seemingly normal life um, yeah. for a child. She loves craft and, and you know, arts and playing in the park. And um, and then, yeah, then then she was diagnosed. So it, it, she was sick, though. So to say that the year leading up to diagnosis, she was on and off sick all the time. So amidst all this fun and games of a normal child, she was always getting these really random fevers. Right. So we started, we started sort of tracking them and going, okay, that's really strange. And there were two things that really got me with her that made me question what was going on. I never thought leukemia, but I did just go, what is going on with her? A year before diagnosis, um, she was hospitalised for a UTI. Right. And she just had really high fevers and she just wasn't getting better on oral antibiotics, which is, you know, my other daughters had UTIs. It's really easy to resolve. Um, and that really got me. I thought, why is she, why has she got such a weak immune system? Why does she need to be hospitalized for UTI? So we were there for three nights. She got better, but then a week later, she got a fever again. Mm -hmm. And then I started diligently writing down, you know, when, when she had these fevers, I would take her to the GP and it was always presenting sort of around her throat. Then I started thinking tonsillitis, the girl's getting, you know, her tonsils are inflamed. And then the other thing that really got me with her was that we were in lockdown and that was when everyone was in lockdown. She didn't mm. even leave the house and she still got fevers. Wow. And yeah, and that's what really got me. And none of us were sick, just her. And when I spoke to her pediatrician, she said, yeah, that's unusual. Let, let's really keep an eye on that. We'll, we'll start maybe with some blood tests and see what's going on because she wasn't even mixing with anyone. Mm. So that's what they were the two sort of big things that got me about her. So she was this perfectly normal but sick every now and then, question mark, you know, four-year-old, three-year-old then turned four. So what happened in the days leading up to the diagnosis that you knew something really wasn't right? Um, well, Christmas, the Christmas just before she was diagnosed, she was sick again Christmas Day and it, it was really interesting. I was like, this is it. This is her tonsils. I'm not waiting anymore. Like, it must be her tonsils. And I was just sort of fed up with her being sick all the time. Mm -hmm. We had seen the pediatrician. We'd spoken to the pediatrician. We did, I demanded a blood test. Like I said, I'm not waiting anymore. Let's just get this blood test. And we did a blood test in January in Melbourne, just before I left. But she was still sick. So she was still, still had this fever. And we did a blood test. 
the blood test wasn't very telling. It showed that she had a little bit of, you know, inflammatory markers, was a little bit sick. Mm -hmm. the, the pediatrician said, okay, there's nothing really there to show anything, you know, to worry about, but let's repeat it. Let, let's repeat it. As soon as she feels better and you can see her symptoms gone, let's do another blood test. But in that process, we were moving to Sydney. So I got to mm -hmm. Sydney and as soon as I saw her well, um, I rushed over to the, my new, new pediatrician in Sydney who had been referred, you know, referred to and all of that. Yeah, sure. And um, we got a blood test straight away. And that was, she was just starting a year, you know, swimming lessons, dance class, preschool, two weeks. And that was the diagnosis about two weeks after that. That, that yeah. blood test told us what had happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Isn't that happened. so important that even though your pathology results looked like everything was clean, your intuition, your mama heart, your gut, whatever you want to call it, you knew that there was something not right with your child and absolutely so important to advocate and to you know we talk we've talked about this with other cases on the podcast that it's always reasonable to ask for a second opinion and that if your primary health care provider really wants the best outcome for your child they should be on board with getting one of their peers to review the case of your child if you are really really concerned because everyone should be on the same team and have you know Absolutely. your child's health as the priority to be the best outcome for everyone and if your health provider knows that they have done everything that they possibly can to support you and the person that you're caring for, they should be more than happy to have a colleague look over those, you know, your oh, child. They were, they were fantastic. They were fantastic pediatricians. And the thing yeah. is with leukemia, this is the thing. It's very hidden. It doesn't show. Yeah, um, it's in yeah. her, it's in her bone marrow and you can't see it in your bone marrow unless you get a biopsy under an anesthetic. Right. So it didn't, until it came into her blood system, that's when it was showing. So she right. didn't have leukemia for a year. She was just having a really poor response to any infection. Her, 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 her immune system was a weak immune system right. and she only got leukemia in that month. So the first blood test was not showing the next month it showed. So we caught it sort of early, quote, um, you know, sort of early. But the thing is with leukemia, it's acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So acute means it, it's very fast growing. Mm -hmm. So within that month, she had almost shed 90% of bone marrow leukemia, leukemia in her <sighs> bone marrow. So within a month of saying, no, she's got nothing. And then suddenly you've got a leukemia diagnosis. So it's very, very fast acting um, disease. Mm. Wow. Well, I'm so glad that you were so onto it <laughs> and that you were able to access that healthcare, especially in the middle of a pandemic and a move and all of those things yeah. that that's yeah. been really tricky for a lot of people. Um, so what happened after she was diagnosed? It's like you're on roller skates, <laughs> like everything happens so fast. Suddenly you hear she's diagnosed mm -hmm. and you're still trying to deal with the shock of what that actually is and what it means and what this disease is. Mm -hmm. And then you're given this treatment plan and then you're in meetings trying to understand, you know, everything. And then suddenly it all just happens. She yeah. starts chemo, she starts steroids, she's got a central line put into her chest. Um, she goes under a general anesthetic. It all happened like literally the next day. This was all just happening so, so quickly. And your mind can't even catch up. You're like just speeding through this because it has to happen quickly but you're not even having time to process it. So basically she started the induction period, which is like 30 days um, of steroids and chemo. And she was an inpatient because um, she was an inpatient for six weeks 
which isn't really the common practice. Usually they can be, you know, discharged fairly quickly on treatment. They come in for their chemo, mm -hmm. but Raya wasn't really responding to the chemo. Um, so they would do the test, they would do the blood test and they would still see her white cell counts the same, very little movement. So we stayed for six weeks till she saw movement. Mm -hmm. um, so we were in a very terrifying state for six weeks. Yeah, um, were you at one of the children's hospitals? Westmead Children's, yeah. incredible hospital. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's essentially we did induction and it was just go, 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 chemo, steroids, inpatients, didn't leave the hospital. And then after that, it, we just followed all the protocols back to back. Um, and because she was a really slow responder, well, not, you know, her body responded slowly. It wasn't fighting the leukemia, you know, as quickly as they, you know, prescribe or want to see. She was, you know, um, labelled a high-risk mm -hmm. um, high leukemia patient. So she had to go down the path of having a bone marrow um, transplant, which terrified me. When I first heard about all this, I just, you know, had no idea what that meant. Yeah, sure. So after, um, you know, what was it? She was diagnosed in February. Her transplant was in August. Um, so we had to get her to remission before the transplant, which we didn't. We didn't get her to remission. We were very close, but we didn't. That's how slow she responded. Um, so it was just in and out of hospital, Kate. It was like... Treatment, come home, oh, fever, you know, sick, back to hospital, back out, back in again, back out, back in. It was just this cycle of treatment, being sick, going back and then yeah. feeling a bit better, but treatment again and then going back into that cycle. Um, Which is brutal doses. for Raya, but it's also one of the things that we're trying to change with this podcast as well is not just about blood donors and blood donation um, and thanking blood donors, but it's also changing the narrative from a special needs child to talking about families with additional needs because yeah. my heart breaks for your little girl and everything that she has been through and having watched my daughter go through very similar things I I really feel it um yeah. but also I think it's important to talk about the impact of everybody else in your family as well that that would have had you know you've got other children and a partner and you know for you career-wise and all of those things, it has such a big impact on your whole entire family and, you know, financially and socially and all of those things. So um, that's one of the things that we really like to highlight through the podcast as well. You're absolutely right. I literally quit my job after that phone call telling mm. me I had a three-day-a-week position at a school. I'm a school teacher and I was teaching yoga and I just, it was instant. I just quit my job and said, I can't come back. Yeah. And so I haven't worked since diagnosis. And my other two children barely saw me for almost yeah. a year. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes yeah. a long time to rebuild those relationships with your other children as well. And we've, I've found, you know, even in them believing that I'm going to show up for school assemblies or sports games or those kinds of things, they would like me to be there, but they don't really expect that I will be there because they always expect that an emergency will happen with their sister and I'll have to go and, you know, attend to that as my, yeah. my priority, which is awful. But when you've got yeah. you know, a critically ill child and a medically complex yeah. child, that is the way that your priorities have to go sometimes. So thank well, you for sharing I, that with us. I totally agree. What, one memory that comes up for me, my yeah. other daughter had a dance concert at the end of the year in December and she was so happy. I was watching her. I was able to be there. Mm -hmm. And the one thing she said to me at the end was, mum, I was just so happy you were watching me because the whole time I was thinking, I hope you don't have to go to the hospital. Oh and um, like, that's exactly what you said. You know, they expect yeah, you're not going to be there. 
Yeah. I'm so glad that you were able to be there for that, for her. And yeah, I, I've missed a lot of those things that I wish that I could have been there for, which is why it's so important to have that support network around you. And I was wondering about, you know, when you moved, if you still had that support network in Sydney, um, I have got a very close friend, I call her my MVP, and I've had to sub her in plenty of times to go to things like, you know, to go to school assemblies when awards were being given out and, you know, take a video and send me the photos and those kinds of things. And um, we relocated up to Queensland um, just over 12 months ago now because Marley needed a local paediatric intensive care unit and to lose that support network was just so hard and yeah it, I mean it broke my heart not having those people around me so um Kate, Kate it's the opposite for me so I didn't have family in Melbourne my family's all in Sydney right. so I was I felt I felt incredibly blessed that I got here and I was it was diagnosis and I was here because mm. I had my parents I had my sister and my brothers Amazing. and friends of course long-time friends but in Melbourne it would have been much harder as much as I had my friends and my network I didn't have my parents and my parents yes. basically helped my, my other two children every day with school mm -hmm. and, and, dinners and um, so, yeah, I understand it's, it's extremely hard without that support network. Yeah. It would just make it a thousand times harder. As brutal as your experience has been, it sounds like the universe really has been on your side a few times in the timing of the way that things have all played out. I'm mm. exceptionally grateful for those things. Yeah. yeah. So can you tell me a little bit more about Ray's treatment? So you were saying that she had the bone marrow transplant. She wasn't quite in remission when she had that transplant, but what happened next? So essentially her transplant for me is like her rebirth. It's, mm -hmm. it's a completely new immune system. So her father was her donor mm -hmm. um, and he, he had, yeah, he had an operation where they extracted her, his bone marrow and then they inserted into her. And now basically new life starts. Fortunately, there's no more chemo. So once you have a transplant, they actually don't want to give you chemo because um, you could kill you could kill someone after they've yeah, had a transplant. Sure. And if you give them chemo, it's um, you've basically got these you know really immature cells, these new cells, baby cells going into her body, and she needs. They actually told me it's even even more immature than a newborn. Mm -hmm. So um, you have to keep her isolated really from anything until her immune system is at the level that is fight things. Um, so essentially, Raya's now um, January, February. She's about six months post transplant now. She's actually yeah, six months post transplant, um, and she's soon hopefully able to mix. She's like she's in kindergarten, but she's not allowed to go to school yet. So yeah, sure. she's still yeah, she's still she's schooling with me at home, which I'm loving. But yeah. um, hopefully soon within the next month, I'm hoping she'll be able to mix more and and have that normal life again. But she still has you know her central line in, yeah. and they're still monitoring her very closely. She's still weekly hospital visits and checkups and you know blood blood tests and things yeah. um so yeah that's sort of her life now and we need two years of clear biopsies um to to be considered cured yeah. and just to say like she never got to remission before transplant but after transplant she was in remission yeah. and they told me that she had a 50-50 chance oh, wow. that she would get get into remission. And if she didn't get into remission, there was nothing they could do for her. So I had this 50-50 chance in my head, the whole transplant. And I can't tell you the agony and the, the terror that was in my mind if she didn't get to remission after that. Um, so I'll never forget that moment that they told me that she got to that. But 
we're still in these, you know, really sort of scary waters where she's in high risk of relapse. She's in, you know, these kind of the first two years, they say she could relapse. And I know people who have relapsed. I'm in that world, you know, that hospital world. So it's all still very tender for me that I'm not, you know, I'm not there saying, oh, she's all good. She's wonderful. Like yeah. I'm still very nervous mm. about the future, but very grateful where she's at. Mm. And we know this is a family as well. I can see a lot of parallels between our stories, but you know, how difficult is it having an immunocompromised child in the middle of a global health pandemic? You know, it's yeah, so really. scary <laughs> to, but yeah. then in some ways we also found some reassurance in it because Mali was immunocompromised for a while before COVID hit. And it amazed us that people were then talking about not going out if they were sick and wearing masks yes. and washing their hands and all of these things that we sort of just took for granted that people should be able to do. And um, yeah, so how have you navigated that? Exactly what you said is what I felt like, um, in a way COVID did us sort of wonders in the sense that everyone was isolating, everyone knew not to go out if they were sick. They took it very seriously. And then they took it even more seriously with my daughter. So mm. we're really grateful for that. And the other thing that helped us with COVID is yes, we had lockdown and the kids couldn't visit her in hospital. That was really, you know, crap. <laughs> we yeah, hated that because she was crying for them all the time. She wanted her sister and brother. Um, so that part was terrible. But the good part of it was they didn't go to birthday parties. They weren't going out. They weren't making her really jealous with things that she couldn't do anyway. So we were quite, you know, there are pros and cons to everything. So in some ways, COVID was good for us. Um, in other ways, it was hard because they were remote learning from home and I was in the hospital and my husband was working from home and it was so much of a juggle for everybody. So there were challenges, um, absolutely, but there were also moments where like, this is actually good for Raya. You know, mm -hmm. it keeps her well that everyone is isolating. Um, and the diligence, you know, the nurses were in masks and, yeah. you know, so you just knew she was extra safe. Yeah. 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 Um, so can you tell me a little bit more about the blood products that she needed while she was having chemo? So... Um, when you have chemo, you know, the, the chemotherapy kills your cells basically, and then your white cell count drops to zero. So do, so do your platelets and your um, hemoglobin, they all drop dramatically and your body's not able to reproduce them because of the chemotherapy. So with children like Ray who have leukemia or she had leukemia, um, they need transfusions in order to bring their counts up so they can survive. They would die without it. So um, she had 45 blood transfusions of some kind in, in the year that she's had. So I know your daughter's had plenty. Um, yeah. I know she needs them to survive. Yeah. Um, so for every time Raya had chemo, there was some point that she needed blood products. And usually it was platelets, um, hemoglobin, and then we'd have the IVIG as well to help boost her antibodies in her body. So they're the, they're the three main blood products we had. Um, but yeah, so... It wasn't unusual, particularly in her transplant. She needed lots of platelets. Mm. Um, she just kept getting the nosebleeds and her body was just not able to, to clot um, very well. So we had a lot of platelets in that time. Mm -hmm. So if we've got anyone that's listening that was a blood donor in Sydney last year, there's every chance that they were one of the people that helped to keep your daughter alive and to keep your family together. So... I guess we just do a shout out and say thank you yeah, so much the gratitude, to those people. Absolutely. The gratitude I have for these absolute strangers who are donating their blood and then giving it to my daughter, I just I can't thank them enough. So, yes, a big shout out to all the blood donors out there. 
Um, yeah, and I and that's why I promote it so much on my own social media, saying, you know, if you want to help, thank you, do this, go and donate blood because it's a yeah. very practical way to help children like like Raya. Um, I know plenty of kids who need it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does her life look like now? What does a typical day look like for her now? So Ray and I have a nice routine at the moment. So before school began again, um, it was sort of like nice lazy days. You know, we just did whatever we could in isolation. We'd go outdoors, but if it was too hot, we couldn't really because she's got um, skin, skin sensitivities due to a medication. Um, so she very easily breaks out in like red skin, um, rashes and things like that. She also had... Um, uh, it's it's a common thing for, for transplant to have something called GVHD, which is graft versus host disease. So she had a you know, pretty severe case of that. So anytime her skin flares up, I get worried that's coming back. But essentially for her life, for her, she needs to be out of the sun. She needs to be um, out of the heat, essentially. So the cooler days are much better for us and her skin at the moment. She wakes up in the morning, she gets dressed as if she's going to school. She puts her clothes on, not a uniform, but her clothes. And we drop the big kids off to school. She comes home, we do our learning together. She does all her her sounds and her reading and her maths. And um, I love it, absolutely love it, um, doing it with her. And then she, you know, has her snacks and her lunch. And then she has her free time after that. So she can watch her iPad, she can play with her dolls. Or we might go for a walk together. So I like to do my walk and my yoga. She might join me um, for some of that. Um, so that's essentially then we pick them up from school and she hangs out with them and mm-hmm. um, yeah so that's essentially what it is and as she's getting bigger and like stronger she's like you know playing like crazy running around full of energy she's giving me a wave <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah life for her now it's looking good um, still a lot of you know things to be mindful of but she's yeah. really happy her hair's growing back and it's darker than before, before um, diagnosis so she's got yeah. darker hair so it's almost like, who is this child? That's not what yeah. you look like before. And IVIG um, changes your hair so much as well. Did you know that? Does it really? Yeah, no, it I can didn't really change your hair. So when Marley was on the more frequent, when she was in three days out of every 10 having infusions, her hair became really, really, really thick and shiny and really curly. Oh. And then as we've reduced the IVIG off, it has changed back to what it was like before. And apparently that's really common, that post-IVIG, your hair changes wow. quite a bit. Mm. I didn't know that. I always assumed it was the transplant and the chemo. Look, it um, could so very well be. Yeah, it could be both. It could be a bit of everything. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. yeah, she's looking really healthy, like her hair's growing and she just looks like she's got colour in her face and yeah. a lot more energy and doing what she used to do before, running and playing. Yeah. It's so beautiful to hear. Marley um, had her first day of primary school yesterday. I guess I saw that. I saw that. Yeah, so we have had to delay it quite a bit um, immune system wise, um, but also just she has a global developmental delay and fatigue wise and um, her seizures were just too frequent for her to be in a school setting at the Mm. beginning of last year. So we just called it and delayed it for a year. Um, She had some early childhood um, intervention stuff that she did, but then I pretty much just did the homeschool program with her. So I totally understand exactly what that looks like. And, you know, our days. uh, So two hours a day, four days a week. She has a rest day. um, One-to-one support, but just that process of being able to put on the same uniform as the boys yesterday. And they all went off to school together and, um, I had the absolute joy. You know how you kind of set these little 
intentions for yourself and your wish and your hope and your dream and one of the ones that I imagined when she was really sick was how amazing it would be if she ever got to school to send a photo to her treating team and say thank you for helping us to keep her alive we made it she got her first day of school and I got to do that yes it's giving me goosebumps all over just telling you about it I saw that picture and I read that yeah beautiful. just so special to be able to say to people you know we made it. And I ne- I don't take that for granted. Not for one minute do I ever take that for granted. You know, having spent so much time on neuro wards, like you on, you know, chemo wards, you know that the people that, you know, you have your cups of tea with at two o'clock in the morning when your kid is really sick, they don't all get to take their children home. And we've lost yeah. lots of people along the way. And um, so I'm just so grateful to blood donors and for all of our teams and nurses who are just the most incredible bloody people in the whole entire world and what they've done for our family to keep our family together. And yeah, mindful of how lucky we are to be able to get experiences like that. Um, so you, to focus on you for a minute, you describe yourself as a spiritual activist. How do you think your spiritual <laughs> side has supported you through caring for Raya? Um, you do lots of daily yoga and breathing exercises. Um, how do you think these practices have helped you face this challenge in your life? Oh, gosh, um, that's a big one because without it, I don't know how I would be right now. Mm. Um, I know at diagnosis, I remember so vividly feeling I can't breathe, just mentally, like feeling like I can't take another breath, like what everything I've ever learned about breathing and um, yoga, it just felt like I can't breathe anymore. I can't do this. And it was like I was holding my breath, you know, metaphorically for so long and still am in some ways. Mm. Um, But those practices that I've been doing for like 19 years, are what I held on to um, and what helped me through the, the, you know, it's the control factor. When you get something like this, when you're handed these cards in life, you think, well, I actually don't have any control about this. I don't have any control of the outcome. I can try. I can try thinking that I do, but um, I don't. And when you're hearing the worst possible news, the worst possible options and the worst possible um, percentages, um, your mind can go to very dark places. Mm. So for me, the practices of my faith, my Christian faith, and also my my yoga um, life practices um, helped me so much bring myself back to the present. And it also helped me um, release in my mind that I can't can't control that. But what I can control is my presence with my daughter, Mm -hmm. my ability to be there for her, my ability to keep myself together, um, and the breath work, the meditation, even just movement um, helped me a lot. Mm. Um, at the beginning, I can't say I really did anything at the beginning. At the beginning, I was just in shock. Um, the first few weeks, I was just like, I can't feel anything. I was very numb. I, I didn't feel God's presence. I didn't feel like doing yoga. Um, I went to my yoga teacher and I did a little bit of yoga and I just cried. Um, and it was more for the connection. I went to my yoga school just to sort of, I think, connect with the people who I knew, I don't know, would just sort of stand next to me and be yep. there. and Just hold that um, space. Yep. Yeah, just to hold space for me. But the practices at the start really didn't do that much because I was in such a you know, flight or fight response mm-hmm. at that moment, just in complete shock. But gradually, particularly through transplant, 
that was my go-to. I was daily prayer, daily meditation, daily yoga practice, daily walks out in nature. I'd sneak a walk out, come back and see her for most days. Um, as long as she was looked after in the room, um, they helped me tremendously. They helped me focus on what I could do, not what I couldn't do. Yeah. Um, looking through some of your social media stuff and what you've posted about, you know, the breathing and the yoga and the way that you lace it through your life. It made me think so much about trying to explain to people that when Marley has a status seizure, her longest seizure was a 39 hour seizure. Um, so they can go for minutes, they can go for hours and you just don't know. It reminded me so much of the timelessness of being in labour that you have no idea whether it's been happening for five minutes or five hours and the only, you can't control what is happening. The only thing you can do is just centre yourself and be present with your breath and there is literally nothing else that you can do in that moment is just to be present with the process be present with the child and I guess you know I haven't known lots of times whether I'm supporting Marley towards her death and she's had lots of situations where that is where we thought that we were going and I've had to say goodbye to her thinking that I was you know supporting her towards the end and there's so much parallel in that in terms of birthing and bringing that new life into the world and that connection mm -hmm. of motherhood and your child and that all that you can do is be present in the moment and just breathe and I saw a lot of that in what you have posted and that's why I asked the question about how that's influenced the way mm -hmm. that you know mm -hmm. you've been present with Raya through that also the community aspect of prayer as well and how much that would have helped your children and your family to feel like they were contributing to her recovery and it being a family experience, um, you know, to pray as a family for your child. And, yeah, how much do you think your faith influenced that time in your life? Well, um, it was, yeah, I think it was in my mind I needed a miracle mm. and the only way I felt that I could try, like, because, you know, there was only so much the doctor said they could do, this is what they're doing, we don't know, 50-50. And, well, for me, it's like I need a miracle then. Mm. And so I was praying for a miracle and I had people flooding me with, with you know, messages and I'm praying for her. And we did, there's a Catholic practice called a novena and it's, it's a nine-day practice of prayer and you pray all together in a community. So you share this prayer and it's through the intercession of a saint Mm -hmm. and we did I think I did three different novenas through from the beginning to now um, for different saints and and one of them was Saint Mary MacKillop that I really felt like I read miracles around her where people had this woman had leukemia and then they said that she was going to die but she didn't mm -hmm. and her faith was in in God and um, and it, it was directly related to Mary McKillop. So I just kept thinking of these miracle stories and in, you're sort of manifesting that this is going to happen to my daughter. She's going to be the miracle that everyone's going to go, wow, what a miracle. She's, she's made it. And I needed everyone to pray, to flood, to flood the world, the universe, God, heaven, whatever you want to call it. I needed that energy to her so that she was coming out in remission. 
and the school that my kids went to all did it. They met daily to pray for her. Um, I had people like overseas, you know, praying for her in communities that I don't even know who they are, but they just said, we've got this community praying and this, and I feel that presence. Like I even get goosebumps thinking Mm -hmm. about it because Mm -hmm. I know when you put energy into something, it's not wasted. Mm -hmm. And when I do my yoga practice on my mat and I dedicate it to someone or something or it's much stronger. You mm-hmm. you put better effort, better energy, and you know that energy is getting channeled somewhere. Yeah. So for me, all this channeling to Raya and her healing is what the miracle was for me. Um, and yeah, that was really important to me. But like I said, I didn't feel that at the start. At the start, I was numb. But it was sort of later, sort of midway through her treatment that I started to draw on these practices um, for Raya. Yeah. Mm-hmm is beautiful and I'm so glad that that alongside the incredible magic of blood donors who have definitely been part of your miracle um, have meant that she is doing so well and I just can't wait for the day that we can have another catch-up and a chat and you can send me a photo of her in her school uniform on her first day (laughs) in her next chapter so thank you so much for joining us for the podcast today and I just wish you and your family all of the best. Oh, thank you so much, Kate. Lovely to be on your podcast. This has been a big week for us, and I know that podcasting isn't a visual medium, but the vibe of love and light that Grace projects is just extraordinary, and I highly recommend that you follow her if you want some content just to fill your cup. You can find her on Instagram at yogaandgrace, and we will pop a link in the show description. Nothing feels more Australian like the modern demonstration of mateship than donating blood or breast milk and this product being used to keep another Australian alive. Our daughter is still alive today because of this incredible selfless gift and it is my privilege to create a space for others to tell their story and to give thanks. This podcast is written and presented by me, Kate Fisher. Today's guest was Grace, who shared Raya's story of leukaemia. Molly's dad, my lovely husband, Jeff Fisher, does the audio production for this podcast. To make an appointment to donate plasma and other blood products in Australia, please go to www.lifeblood.com.au. We would love it if you could add your donation to the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood team tally. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and share this episode with a friend. And as always, I will leave the final word to Mali. Thank you for my prize, Mark.